This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah here in the Essentials Program in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount, soon to be the place of the Beit HaMikdash, the Third Temple. Now, the... Um, I was just saying that, like, the most important thing in my life is to be in, deep down, like, my core stuff is that you should like me. And that means that I'll never get anything done. I will never have made a difference with my life. Because if you're always making sure everyone likes you, that's, the, that's like, synonymous with you did nothing in your life. Like, you didn't stand for anything. You never found yourself. You never, you, you never lived your life. And you're also going to pay big time when you meet your maker. <laughs> Which <laughs> is always my fear. Is you're gonna pay big time when you meet your maker because you're gonna be like, well, why the hell did I make you? If you were just gonna be nice and charming to everybody and just perfectly never say anything. And this is also one of the big dangers of rabbis, because rabbis have a job description. Did you know there's a job description for rabbis? You know that? Yeah. It's to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> But how many rabbis are really good at comforting the afflicted, but lousy at afflicting the comfortable? And I always feel like I always feel like when they when the rabbis go to hell, because part of being a rabbi means you're going to hell. So I always feel like when they go to hell, they um, who's going to be there? It's going to be the top donors of their synagogue. They're just be sitting there with like chainsaws, pointed ears, and fangs. Who like, we're the ones who essentially paid you to ruffle our feathers, to make us real, to get us over ourselves, so that maybe we would have some portion in the next world. But you spent all your years flattering us. You spent all your years overlooking us, overlooking our, our shortcomings, just so you could somehow pay your bills. So it's pretty scary being a rabbi. And, uh, and anyway, but I'm more afraid. I'm more, even though my deepest core is issue, like really my core is that you should like me. But I, my bigger fear is that I wouldn't have made a difference. And so I'm going to sacrifice being liked to have made a difference in this world. And you want to know something my life's so much more meaningful? It's scary as hell because like, I just feel like any second someone's just going to not like me. And any second I'm going to get a negative report. And any second someone's going to speak to me and say, you know, you really upset our seminary girls or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. You know. I'm so afraid of that. I really am. Uh, but at the same time, I'm more afraid of having done nothing in this life. That's scarier than, than negative feedback. is having never made a difference. That's truly scary. So if this motivates anyone to start doing some accounting on how you've been going about things, so hopefully it, it's helpful. Did I make a bracha yet? I don't think I made it. Thank God. <laughs> no, because if I did make a bracha and I don't remember it, that means it wasn't much of a bracha, was it? <laughs> Which is, you know, last thing you want is robotic Judaism. I mean, that's like, that's like, rather die. You know, robotic other religions, that's cool. Because, I mean, how often are you at anyway doing anything? But in Judaism, robotic Judaism, that means like a lot of your day 
<laughs> a lot of your days just missing. Okay, well, on the theme of not being liked, today is Israeli elections, and every city and municipality in the entire country is voting for their leaders. And and so the, so the country's gotten, like, temporarily insane right now, and my phone's ringing off the hook constantly because people think I'm more influential than others, and therefore, if they can convince me who to vote for on the phone, random people, like, people who never speak to me in my synagogue, not because they don't like me, it's just a big synagogue, but, like, but they are taking time out of their day to call me and make sure that I'm voting for, let me see if I got this straight, Deutsch for mayor and Gimmel for uh, for the, uh, what do you call the cabinet? Meaning the people who sit around there. I don't know why they're called the cabinet when they sit at a table. But, <laughs> so, Deutsch for mayor and the cabinet should be Gimmel. Now, I don't even know what that means. Really, you know, like, who's Deutsch and, and what's Gimmel? <laughs> you know, I'm an Ole, Ole Hadash. You know, you're. By the way, it's funny. It's called an Ole Hadash. Someone who moves to Israel, because you're always Hadash here. Like you, Israel. Like uh, you have a spot right here. If you, oh, you want the back spot? Yeah. Open up those two chairs for them, please. It's funny that it's called an Ole Hadash because because you never quite integrate when you're an American in Israel. And by the way, you shouldn't be freaked out about that. That's cool. Because eventually God's going to do enough crazy stunts for the U.S. that all the Israelis are going to come over here like he did with the French. And, uh, and so all those Americans are going to come here and you're not going to be so weird anymore. Because think about it. The American Jewry is almost half the size of Israel's Jewry. It's almost half. And they're all coming. So it's like... I mean, you might as well, if you're building a building in Israel, you might as well make the, the washer and dryer space American size. You know, because the likelihood of eventually an American washer and dryer being in that space, you know, is high. Right now, we all have European space for washer dryer. It's a little thinner, a little shorter. You know, those big old American ones with a big glass window. You know, they, so they... <laughs> Because that's where we're going. You know, Israelis are going to be the minority in this country. <laughs> okay, so, so a couple things. Number one is leadership is always a reflection of the people. So if you ever have, I mean, sometimes there's an anomaly like Trump is a bit of an anomaly. I don't know if he's really a reflection of the people of America. Um, I think he's the reflection of some people in America, but certainly not a lot of them. And, uh, but in Israel and most countries, the leaders are a reflection of the people. Even despots are a reflection of the people. Uh, for example, uh, um, Stalin was a horrible leader. And he, uh, and you know, obviously hundreds of millions of people were killed as a result of that. But you, Stalin did not kill those people. There were people who killed those people in Stalin's country. So he was a reflection of the people who were willing to do that. And we gave a class last week about our dark side, that, that you could have been one of those people leading death camps. You could have. Now, all of you are going like, I beg your pardon. I could be one of those people. 
I would not be one of those people. So if any of you believe you wouldn't be one of those people or couldn't be one of those people, that proves that you could have been one of those people. You know why? Because you're, you're not aware that you have a dark side. So then you're not really in control of it, and that means you don't have much muscles against it. And so in the, if all the circumstances lined up, you could easily be that person because you're not prepared Whereas someone who's like a Jew who keeps Torah, who knows we have a dark side, and we admit we have a dark side, and we admit we're half crazy. So now you have, you have an approach to your dark side. Like, I know how to approach that thing. And so if something really evil happened, and they would need people to carry that out, you're less likely to be the one. It's all the people pretending there's no dark side. And by the way, there are even observant people who fall, fall prey to that. Hey, the only seat's right where the hug's going to be, so you might as well come get the hug. It's the only seat in the house. This is one of my oldest, dearest seats. Mm, this is so much. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> and there are actually, there are actually, um, you can generally tell the people who don't believe they have a dark side if they're into stringencies, which in Hebrew are called chumras. People who are like very chumradic are usually the ones pretending they don't have a dark side. There's no, I don't, I can't explain why, but there's usually a correlation between that. Like they've, they've gotten all involved with like being Mr. Good, goody two-shoes, stringency person. They're usually not so aware of the dark side. And they tend to be very judgmental of people whose dark side's kind of showing up here and there. You know, what? Wound really tied tied around being good, and very much phobic of anything else. Whereas, whereas uh, someone who is good, because of their recognition of the the dark in them, that kind of dark shadow, the evil side, someone who's good because of the muscles they've flexed in being good, is is going to be, first of all, a lot more tolerant of people making, you know, silly errors and think, acting like idiots. They're going to be much more tolerant of human beings and their frailties and, and uh, mistakes they make. And, but they also, they themselves are more trustworthy. They, I can trust that person because the person who has a relationship to his own darkness and knows how to deal with that and stay, stay on the side of light is the kind of person I can trust. He's not going to be the guard at a death camp that I'm somehow in line for. So, so, so there is a correlation of people who are extra stringent and, and extra dangerous as a result. Not as a result of that, but because they're just so scared of their darkness that they refuse to admit it's even there. You know, because they're just so holy. You know? But holiness and strictness don't go together usually. Usually a, a holy person is the one who... You sense acceptance in their presence. You know, only, only the Jews can create the holy man who you always feel like a goy when you're with them. You know, <laughs> you know I know a family like this in Israel who, once in a blue moon, I'll actually go there for Shabbat because it takes me a year to forget what it feels like there. And it's somewhere in the middle of his kiddish where I'm like, how in the hell did I get back here? <laughs> I mean, you feel like such a goy by the time you leave this place. And, and, but we've actually somehow twisted the world enough that we can actually equate, a ho- we can call someone holy who we feel 
you know, unacceptable in their presence. And that's somehow the holy person. Like, holy means, holy means so many things, but it has symptoms. And one of the symptoms is when you're with them, you just get washed clean. You're washed clean in their presence. You just suddenly feel so Jewish in their presence. That's the holy person. You, you come out so Jewish from just spending a little time with them. That's, what's, that's one of the symptoms of holy. Um, okay, so anyway, it's election time. And, it's, and officials are always, are always a reflection of the people. And I have to say, and I, I don't want to speak negatively too much, but on a, on a negative level, is that it's disappointing to me that the Jews who actually keep Torah, like this remnant who actually keep Torah, like they actually keep Shabbat, and they keep kosher, and they, you know, they do their best not to speak Lashon Hara, and they, you know, like they're, they're, they're really working pretty hard and trying to be holy and good, are um, in total disagreement over who should lead their city. Each city in Israel has the people who are wearing kippahs and sitzes are split into who should be leading, leading the city. Both the leader and the people, the cabinet are split. Meaning there's no agreement amongst our leaders. Now, now we have... Just like America, we have an academia that would rather Judaism become a part of a museum. You know, like this museum in L.A., there's a museum called, uh, oh, it's one syllable, it's Mulholland Drive up there. Oh my gosh, my shirt's on top. Um, Skirball? Two syllables, Skirball. Yeah, Skirball. <laughs> so they created this like $7 million museum of Judaism, as if it's gone. Meaning we got a museum of like, Judaism, <laughs> which was really funny because I was working at UCLA for a couple months to be a rabbi on campus, and HLA asked me to bring the students to the Skirball Museum. So I was like, okay, no problem. So I bring the students up there. And uh, when I came to the front door and the docents looked at me, they were like, because this is LA, this is not Brooklyn, you know, they're like, they're like, did you like pop out of one of our exhibits? <laughs> and they were so uncomfortable with me. Because, like, their whole thing was Judaism died, but we're going to, we're going to show you what it was like. And here I am, like, I'm like a ghost from the past, you know. We're back, you know. And, And what was very interesting to me was the opening day of that museum, the opening day of a $7 million museum, they're little tiny group of Jews who actually look like me in L.A. They're in an area called La Brea. Now it's like a really thriving community. In fact, the, the great donor Rechnitz lives there and is extremely generous with the community. But this is before that. This is many years ago. This is over 20 years ago. So the, the black hat community on that day stopped serving hot meals to the children out of lack of funds. So the people who actually were living Torah no longer got hot meals, the kids. I mean, the little guys. The little, the little ones stopped getting hot meals the day this $7 million Museum of Judaism opened. It's like, 
backwards world we live in, you know, total backwards world. And anyway, but the, our little remnant who, that was all parenthetical, who the academic world, the political world, the world of media, which is probably bigger than both the academic and the political world, would like to see us gone. Maybe not with Holocaust style, but if we could just like conveniently disappear, they would love that. And yet our small remnant can't decide who should be leading the town. And we're all going to split up the vote so much that no matter what we do, it will be one of their people who are against Torah and against Shabbat and against Kashrut and against anything that's even vaguely modest that all the cities will just once again have the, who are still the majority of population, even though the majority of children look like me, the majority population of Israel still, you know, is into tattoos and body piercings and gay raves in Tel Aviv. And that's still the majority. And so they will still determine who gets their stores opened up on Shabbos and who gets to run their clubs on Shabbos and, you know, that they'll be in control because we can't get our acts together to make a decision about who should lead. And I'll tell you, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. And you know what? Why don't they all agree on the worst leader, but at least a leader? At least a leader who slightly smells of Judaism, slightly smells of our prophetic tribe of thousands of years, the tribe that has that has civilized this planet, a tribe that, that without us, all hell would have broken loose years ago and this whole place would have just fallen right through space from the weight of its problems. Let's choose the worst leader, but at least a leader who smells Jewish. But instead, we're going to not agree and we're going to fight and we're going to split up the vote and each city is going to be run by people who are not interested in Judaism. Which means capitulating to some places, even the minority, like Jerusalem, the minority is not keeping Torah, but they'll capitulate to them because that minority happens to be the, uh, the vast majority of people involved in business ventures. Now that's all the cities. But the holy city of Jerusalem, like Hashem did so many miracles for us to be sitting here. I mean, right outside this window, Exhibit A, the Temple Mount, in Israeli jurisdiction, Israeli sovereign territory, with a war that began, began on the sixth day of the sixth sphera of the counting of the Omer, a six-day war that takes place on the sixth day of the sixth sphera. What is the sixth sphera? It's Yesod, foundations. And there's a stone underneath that gold dome called the foundation stone. And that foundation stone was in Jordanian hands. You're right now in Jordan about... I don't know, 1967, how many years ago was that? We're in, it was 41 years ago? 51 years ago? How many years? 51. 
51 years ago, right here, you would be in Jordan and you would not be safe 51 years ago. And on the sixth day of the sixth Fira, this special Kabbalistic counting, which is called foundation of foundation, Yisod Shabi Yisod, was the sixth day war, where we get back the channel. Because six is the Vav, letter Vav, Aleph Bet, Gimel Dalad, Hey Vav, right? Six is the Vav, and the Vav is the channel between heaven and earth, right? A Yud is just floating in air. A Vav is just a Yud implemented. It's the channel, it's the, the foundation that goes heavenward. And, and Aharon, who served under that gold dome and did the holy service every year, the Kohen Gadol, who represented that sphere of the foundation, would do that service there. Once a year, he was allowed in there. And so God, through all these miracles, 48, not to mention the Holocaust, because we always get attacked. You guys know about Amalek and redemption? That we always get a major genocide attack, attempt right before redemption. So th- We've only had three redemptions. We left Egypt, we're on our way to Israel, Amalek attacks us in the desert. We're leaving Babylon after the Purim story, which was then Persia. We're leaving the Persian Empire on the 70th year, and we get a genocidal attack from Amalek, otherwise known as Haman, who's the great-grandson of Agag, the king of Amalek. Haman Hagagi. He's from the family of Agag, who was the king of Amalek. We build the second temple. It's destroyed. We go into close to 2,000 years of exile. Hashem brings us back to the land, which, of course, is going to be precipitated, precipitated by attack by Amalek. We lose a third of our people in that attack. This is one of the reasons you know the state of Israel is divine. Because if Amalek attacks us, you know it's divine. And we got our worst attack from Amalek. And how you know the Nazis are Amalek, you can check our discovery seminar. But I promise you, if you hear that class, you will leave without any shadow of a doubt that the Nazis were Amalek. And they were attacking us right before we came to the state of Israel and announced our sovereignty for the third time. And by the way, if you know any, like, Sakmir Hasidim who like to say that the state of Israel was not divinely ordained, so then you can just say to them, well, why did we get attacked by Amalek? Now, do you think they're going to give that to you, or they're going to keep arguing? Arguing. Arguing. Guess what their argument is? Their argument is, and ha- okay, I give that to you, but had you not done it, meaning had man not tried to do this, because they believed it was supposed to come from heaven. Had, meaning, who was it done by? Total secular Zionists who had like almost surgically reinstalled their foreskins. <laughs> After 150 years, 150 years fighting the Torah community, meaning the people who fought to, to destroy Torah, to erase Torah from this world. Because who can deal with the guilt, right? Torah is rough. So after 150 years erasing the guilt of Judaism, those are the ones who founded the state, which is really God's sense of humor. Like, how in the world are they the ones who started the state? But I'll tell you, that I have an answer for that. Would you like to hear why they're the ones of all the people to start the state? And it makes no sense. I mean, these people have completely dropped Judaism. I mean, they've made it like... I mean, they've just gotten rid of Judaism, but suddenly they've like bumped their heads collectively... 
and gone temporarily insane about one commandment, and that's Zionism, to live in the land of Israel. Like, that's their thing. And the land is like a keep us, you don't need to wear one. And after everything we did to get here, we don't really need to keep Shabbat. It's enough we're here. And, and they just founded the state. So why them? So here's my theory. My theory is, it's just a theory. My theory is, is that Jews, you know, Jews never go down easy. We just don't go down easy. And when we're down, we don't stay down long. It's really hard to knock Jews down. And when we go down, we kind of come back up. You know, those, when we were kids, then we're, what were those blow-up things with the weight, at the, they had sand at the bottom? And you, you knock it down and just come back up. Yeah, that's the Jew. Like, you, you can't keep us down. A great juxtaposition is the Africans who were enslaved in America. That, that, you know, it's one in I don't know how many who've left that mentality of black people. I'm named after Martin Luther King. He died three days before I was born. My English name is John Martin because he died right before I was born. And like every liberal Jew, you got to be named after a black minister. So, I mean, don't I look like someone named after a black minister? So the, that's part of the reason why I'm so colorblind and like love all people. I'm named after Martin Luther King. You know? I'm like born to just love people. Now, um, anyway, but how long did the Jews stay in their Holocaust after the war? I mean, five years. They, they came into the U.S. like... Like, they look like Ethiopians with, sw- with distended bellies, swollen skulls. You saw the picture. You guys have seen the pictures after the war. Toothpick arms. And within five years, they were like millionaires building buildings all over the U.S. Like, like I'm the grandchild of some of these people. And they, I mean, they just like, we don't go down easy and we don't stay down for more than like an hour. You know, it's just like, and then we eat like a little chunt, a little kugel, get the body back to shape, you know, nothing like chunt and kugel to get your body back. And, and then immediately we're like, we're going to recreate everything from where we left off. You know how many times we were exiled? You ever seen the list of the exiles? Anyone ever seen it? It's worth Googling the list of Jewish exiles. It's crazy. I mean, you can just tape down your scroll button on your computer and just, we'll keep going. You can come, go get a cup of coffee, come back, it's still scrolling down. How many times we were thrown out of the country. You know what that means? I mean, we don't even know what that means, but like your, your stuff, like your couch, you know, your fridge, your, you know, your, your, your house that you bought with your hard-earned money. Like when you were married and raising a family in a home in, in, throughout our exiles, I mean, I, I doubt they really took their home that seriously because the chances of your kids inheriting it was almost none. You were probably going to be exiled before that would happen. You'd just lose everything and start again somewhere else. And then we'd rise to the top of that. We're like oil, Hanukkah oil. You know, you ever put oil and water together? For those who are a little cheap with their olive oil, you know. So the oil just rises above. It just rises up. We're like that oil. How many? 109 exiles. 109 times he looked it up. That whole Jewish populations, whole Jewish populations, you know, like imagine like the, every Jew in LA has been uprooted and banished from the US. 
You know, this happened over and over again. Whole giant populations of Jews sent packing. And um, anyway, I just want to mention one more thing is that uh, that rising up is like Joseph. We have a seat right here, nice lady. Uh, that You can leave your bag if you want. That, um, that Joseph rising up, that's Joseph. What is Joseph? Joseph's the exiled Jew. He's the, he's the uh, paradigm, or uh, what's the fancier word? The hi, hi. Yeah, archetype. archetype. He's the archetype of the exiled Jew. You know, you get sold into slavery, and then you, 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 you ultimate, sorry, your brothers put you in a pit. <laughs> you get pulled out, sold into slavery. You rise up to become the master of the house. Framed by his wife, thrown into a pit, comes out of the pit as the ruler of Egypt. It's like, we just don't stay down long. And it's very interesting, by the way, that the word Yosef, the word Yosef is the numerical value of 10, 6, 60, and 80, which is no coincidence, is the same numerical value of the word Zion, which is 90 plus 10 plus 6 plus 50, which is 70, 66 as 156. They both equal 156. Joseph and Zion, they go together. And you want to know something? Joseph's job, if you didn't know any oral law, would you consider Joseph a spiritual man or more of like the head of the uh, treasury? Which one? Head of treasury. treasury. There's nothing in there that sounds even remotely spiritual about Joseph. He just seems like like a political type guy who's the head of the treasury, handles the seven years of plenty, stores everything properly, divvies out for the seven years of, you know. He's, he just really seems like a more of a material guy. Yeah, he's got a strong material side to him, and he's really good at that stuff. Okay, and really good at dream interpretation. Yeah, he's good at that, which is kind of spiritual. But, but anyway, you'd never know he's a tzaddik. You'd never know he's a righteous person if you just knew the written Torah. You'd have no idea he's a tzaddik. Well, who founded the state of Israel? Material or spiritual people? Material. Extreme materialists. Extreme materialists founded this state. And you know when they did so? They did so. How did their movement start? Their movement started because the Industrial Revolution. Well, the Industrial Revolution was the beginning of mechanization. Mechanization eventually became the kind of thing that you can create a state overnight. You can actually create a country overnight with mechanization. Something that used to take centuries to create a population in in an area. Just the infrastructure would take centuries to create. You could actually create it overnight. Well, there's an Industrial Revolution that now makes it so you can create a country overnight. Then you have all the, all the fallout of the Industrial Revolution, which was enlightenment. And then you have Jews drop their Judaism and become the enlightened ones, which is called the Haskalah. So they become the Maskilim. The Maskilim are the enlightened Jews. They were the camp against Jew- Torah. And they become the enlightened, which I really call them the endarkened. And... The, the, anyway, but materialist is in darkened because if you're materialist, meaning if you think the material world is going to answer your questions, well, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. 
And they're, they're like setting up nets already in Brooklyn just to keep everyone. You know, when you jump off the bridge, you get caught in a net, which could be a little awkward, you know. <laughs> I just would not want to be in one of those nets when the cops show up. And they're just like, nice try, bozo, you know. But when you're a materialist, you might as well jump, you know, because what's the difference anyway? And, and, the, and I mean, you have to be a fairly good philosopher to take your life, but as long as you're fairly intelligent, you might as well jump. And, uh, and, the, and for materialists, because if the whole world's just made out of its materials, so then I don't know what, what any of us are doing here right now. You know? And the, anyway, so, but they're really good at stuff. Now, Jews, they stay down. No, Jews rise up. So when you jump out of Judaism, you don't just assimilate. You assimilate, but you rise up and become the industrialists. Jews always rise. So if we rise as Jews, or if we rise as industrialists, it's that same Joseph archetype of rising. We just rise. And we rise up, and we will be either the most holy person you ever met, or we're going to be the most material person you ever met. And this is why, where I grew up, Jews were the least spiritual people you would ever meet. In my area, you guys know LA a little bit, like... Like, my Gentile friends were so much more spiritual than we were. And Jews were just the least spiritual because, because we're just going to go to the top of whatever we think is going on. And so if we thought materialism was going on, so we would go to the top of that. And if only someone had influenced us as kids, we would have gone to the top of spirituality. But who knew? You know, we were in West L.A., you know, with these, like, second-generation immigrants Meaning the first generation made our parents go into the workaholism, made our parents become workaholics. So they were like super wealthy, but who's bothering us? You know, all we're getting is boobala, boobala, boobala when they pinch our cheeks. But our parents were just like, well, we made it, so have a good time, you know, and we had a good time. You know, we just partied because, you know, no pressure. Being a child of, I pity the fool whose parents are immigrants to the U.S., all those Russians and Persians. It was so much pressure to work, so much pressure to make it. Like, you know what we did for you? You'll get a degree. You know, and she's like, I just want to be a housewife. And they're like, well, pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> you can get a degree and then be a housewife. MRS degree. What's that? MRS, oh, MRS degree. Yeah. That's nice. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Persian and Russian parents. <laughs> He's like, my son will be a lawyer. Sorry, I'm not good at Russian accents, but my son will be a lawyer. And I'm like, your son wants to be happy. And he's happy learning Torah, and he wants to be a rabbi. He says, my son will be a happy lawyer. <laughs> he thought that would somehow help. His son's an amazing rabbi today in Boca Raton. And I'm not sure if his grandfather ever quite got over it, but his parents are like totally blown away, and his parents jumped on board, and today are fully observant. So, so it's, it was good news that his son had the strength to stay over his grandfather's extreme pressure. Now, um, the Israel was started by the Joseph of Egypt. 
Israel was started by these people because there was only so much time that God was going to give us. I mean, how much time can Jews do anything before the Gentiles come after us? And we don't have a lot of time. We already, someone already Googled it. We had 109 exiles in a matter of 1,800 years. These are major population. We're not talking about little towns. That was way more than 109. We're talking about the major populations, meaning, meaning like this giant population of Jews in Spain, as big as New York City, Jewish population, were completely ethnically cleansed and just sent packing or killed multiple times from Spain until they were back somehow and then like the civilization grew again until they were exiled. We weren't going to have a lot of time to build this state. It had to happen quick. And so the Industrial Revolution made that a possibility. But who's going to do it? You know, Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof? He ain't building no country. All those shtetl Jews were not about to build the state of Israel. They just weren't going to do it. So it's got to get done. We see now in hindsight that it had to happen. We even got an Amalek attack, which stamps it as real. Okay, maybe a little early. Maybe because that's their, by the way, the argument of the Satmir Chassidim would be, well, it, it, it happened early. Yes, we would have gotten attacked by Amalek. I give you that. But did it have to be right then while we were all a bunch of sitting ducks? Now, they have an extra bone to pick because they were the last million killed were, were from uh, the Hungarian Satmir Chassidim were the last million. So that's already like too much to take. So you can't really argue with them. And they do believe that the, they do believe that the Holocaust happened because we pushed the state, meaning the secular Zionists pushed the state. And they did push it. They really pushed it. And I know you're all proud of them, and I'll, between us, I am too. You know, they pushed hard, but at a huge price. A massive price that none of us would ever even normally think about. But, um, but if you notice, our other altercations with Amalek were not as atrocious. The attack in the desert, Joshua took care of that. The attack with Haman, it got close to a genocide, but... In the end, we celebrate Purim, and I don't even know if any Jew died in that. But the Holocaust, we lost a third of our people, and, and, uh, and many tortured and horrific. And, uh, and there's no such thing as a survivor, really. I mean, you might have survived in body. And I, I call there's a triple level of survival. You survive in body, but not spiritually. You survived in body and you still wrap your tefillin. You still keep Shabbat. You still pray. So you survived both physically and spiritually. And I've only met a couple of third survivors. Third level survivors are like special, special, special. And that's, they survived in body. They survived spiritually. And they even have emotional intelligence intact, meaning they still are in touch with themselves. But I almost, I mean, there's the whole communities of Jews who, like, rebuilt Judaism, who have the first two. But there's nobody home. There's just, you know, go daven. Did you daven? Okay, come back to me when you've davened. 
I just got to meet one of them the other day, and I was at his, the wedding of his, his, uh, one of his grandchildren. But one of the grandchildren, who is a dear student of mine, no longer has payas. You know, he's been on this crazy journey, and, uh, and I, I've been with him the whole way, I and mean, it's just amazing, and it's such a bracha, and he's so special and so holy, and he's still, still on the path, which if you knew him, you'd just be like, this guy's going to get more reward than anyone in the generation just for keeping Shabbat. Anyways, so I'm at the wedding of one of the kids, and, and I just so wanted to meet the grandfather because the, 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 the father of the groom's my student. And so are the kids. So I went, I'm the, rab, the family's rabbit. So I go to meet the grandfather, and the grandfather, I said, Hi, Rabbi Glazer. And he is like, Rabbi Glazer, when's Shlomi going to grow back his payas? <laughs> now, I've been through hell and high water for this kid, I've been through hell for him. And he's a, he's a living monument of the strength of the soul that has persisted and stayed true to Torah. Where the pay is. Anyway, I said, I'll work on it. <laughs> so I went and found Shlomi, and I'm just like, Shlomi, just met your grandfather. Time to grow some pay us. We laughed. We had a good laugh. And you know what? He'll probably grow a pair of payas eventually. You know? He has these two little feathery things that are going. You know the little feather guys? He's got two little feathers. Anyway. And with all of that, and then the miracles of 48, where the whole world turns against us, the British evacuate Israel, leaving all their weaponry to the Jordanians? Like, what's that? Did they, like, somehow miss the UN vote? Like, they hand it. They hand all their... They're ruling this place. They've got lots and lots of weaponry. And they took all their weaponry. What are we? We're just, like, whoever could slide in under the British, like, slid into Israel. We have underground bullet factories working 24-7, underground in the craziest, craziest situation, making handmade bullets. And the British, after a UN vote, that's United Nations. What, the British aren't in the United Nations? I think they are, the last I checked. And they just run out of Israel as fast as they can and leave all their weapons to the Jordanians. And these Holocaust-surviving Jews fight them off in miracle after miracle after miracle. But don't manage to get Jordan out. And so once you're already by the train stop outside there, by the city hall there, that's already the border. You couldn't come over here. And of course, they completely ransacked the Jewish quarter and burnt down all the shuls. And then the Six-Day War. Miracle. We, We get back to our biblical... Biblical territory, six days. Miracles. On the sixth day of the sixth sphere is the six-day war. Balchuva movement begins. It's like it couldn't have been better. And 
And here we are in 2018, and those who actually saw the miracles and understood them as miracles from God can't decide who should be mayor of Jerusalem. And so instead, we're going to spend the next several years just watching Jerusalem get get scrapped on without the S by the minority of the city who happen to be the business owners and have no interest in keeping Shabbat or anything else that's sacred. Because the because the leaders of the Jews and who are just a reflection of us, so we can't blame them, they're just a reflection of all leaders are a reflection of us. Because we can't agree on something. Even the worst, like let's just take the worst of leaders, but someone we agreed on. You understand, everybody, that that there is no reason that tomorrow we have not announced a completely tore true mayor in a city that's majority of people who keep Shabbat. That's what should have happened. I mean, you should all have been here tomorrow to hear the announcement of someone who's actually going to help guard our prophetic tribal you know, ancestral traditions. The only tribe in the world that had prophecy. I mean, how do you get that? You know, like this. I mean, the world's filled with tribes. There's Native American remnants. Amazon's got tribes. India's got tribes. Sri Lanka's got like the country. Africa's packed with tribes. And there's one tribe that actually wasn't down up, but they were up down. They had prophecy. And I've met some tribal leaders. You know, I've I've gotten to be on panels with, you know, real chiefs, Indian chiefs and stuff. All those dudes. I mean, I I have to say, my Kabbalistic teachers do know more, but they're very much rivaled by these people. These people know a lot about the metaphysicals, meaning the spiritual realms, a lot. Not as much, but a lot. And now they don't know nothing compared to fifty years ago, because. Meaning my Rebbe's Rebbe knew way more than my Rebbe. So they don't know nothing compared to them, but definitely they're up there. They're up there. And we're the, we're the prophetic tribe. We're the only tribe in the world that got prophecy. Meaning we know the direct access was direct. It wasn't just us working our way up, because when you're working your way up, there's a lot of other things there in the spiritual realms that are like not necessarily the truth. Prophecy's clean. You don't get prophecy if you're not clean. It's a clean message, clear. It's a different thing than, than the other tribal leaders get. If National Geographic had any idea that we couldn't choose a leader for Jerusalem, I think they would just raise the money and just somehow like create some international protest and say that we're just going to choose somebody who will guard Jerusalem, the only prophetic tribe on earth, is not going to have their holy city led by someone who's not interested in maintaining its spirituality. So I know this was a little depressing. I hope it was very informative, but there's one thing I want to say that is super awesome super awesome, is that <laughs> my neighbors, my neighborhood is covered in flyers for who different neighbors think you should vote for. 
My phone's ringing off the hook constantly of people trying to influence me on who to vote for. I've had people knock on my door, neighbors who normally are not knocking on my door unless they need a cup of milk. But my wife keeps telling me, like, yeah, the neighbor knocked. And I'm like, yeah, what does he want? Well, he wants to talk to you. What does he want to talk to me about? And she's like, I don't know. He's, I guess he's coming back later. He comes back later. I'm not home because I'm just not home very much anyway. And he comes back later and she's like, well, my husband asked what you want to talk to him about. She's like, well, I just want to discuss with him who he should be voting for. And my wife's like, you can tell me who you think he should vote for. <laughs> and I've gotten phone call after phone call. Random people. They had my number. I mean, they're people I've met before, but they're calling just to make sure. WhatsApps of the wazoo of how, who I'm supposed to be voting for. The gabai of my shul and Meisharim has sent me lots of these things. Um, Rebbies have, have uh, had their gabais send me things. Um, I don't know what is wrong with all these people, but they believe you can influence someone. It is shocking. We are so the opposite of American voters. American voters, you can't even get them out to vote. And do, do, does America give a, a national vacation to vote? You know that there's no working today? Even H had to send an email. Like they said, we know you're all coming. But legally, we have to tell you that you have a day off. My, this is my day off. How am I doing so far? I'm working all day. But, the, uh, but we're all here because we're not here to work. We're here to share Torah. But we had to be given that because we have a legal day off because voting is important to us. We believe a human being's voice counts. We count Jews. We have a whole book called the Book of Numbers where all we do is count Jews because you count. And somehow everyone believes you count. And I wasn't raised that way. I still can't get over it. Like, why does this guy think that if I vote this way, it makes a difference? That's my mind. But all these people believe that it's worth their time to call me, to come over to my house. And everyone's doing it to each other. And they put up signs as if, like, I'm suddenly switching parties because of their sign. I'm going to stop voting Gimmel, which I still don't know what that means. <laughs> I finally asked my wife this morning, I'm like, what does it mean? And she's like, it's Hasidic. I'm like, yeah, any more details there? <laughs> like... Hasidic people vote Gimel? Okay, I guess I'm Hasidic. You know, okay. So I guess I'm voting Gimel. But like, but right across from my door, you open my door and there's all these posters that say DT on it, which for me stands for like detoxification or something. I don't, I don't know what DT means exactly. Oh, I think it's Degel Hatar. Degel Hatar. Well, what is that? It has the word Torah in it. I'm not Degel Torah. And then there's another one called Eights, which means wood. And I'm not sure what that stands for. Anyone know what eight stands for? That's Rabbi Auerbach. He's the one whose followers are creating all these problems because they won't sign up for the army. Meaning none of them will go to the army, but you at least put your name in the mix. You don't create a warrant out for your arrest. He's so strong that he's like, no, put, get a warrant out for your arrest. And so all his followers go for warrants. Meaning when you turn 18, if you're part of his community, you get a warrant out for your arrest. That sounds like fun. I mean, you certainly no one who moved to Israel can do that because then you can't fly because you get arrested at the airport. So I guess you're not eights if you weren't, you know, if you're if you have family outside the country because you'd like to go to a wedding. 
You know, because you're never going to be able to leave without getting arrested, so you're here permanently if you're, you know, you certainly couldn't be Breslev, because how are you going to get to Uman, you know, for Rosh Hashanah? So, anyway, but they believe in influence. You can influence somebody, and I am so impressed. So the beginning and most of this class was how depressed I am by, and embarrassed by this place. Not this place. The place is great. But by the people who are supposed to be the bearers of Torah. I'm not expecting much from secular Israelis, but I am expecting much from the leadership and the practitioners of Torah in this country. I'm expecting much more than what we all had to witness. And the, uh, but the other is, um, the other is, the positive side is, whoa, they really believe that you can influence somebody. And for me, I'm a little embarrassed because I am an influencer. You know, this is going out to the world, especially if one of you pays for it because I'm not paying for this class. You know, if, if you like the class, I'll, I'll boost it for however much you want to boost it for. But I'm just not boosting this class. I don't want to boost a class where I'm complaining, but it's probably important. Um, what I do want to announce to everybody, though, is the next class that will not be recorded is, is Rabbi... Aaron Neckemeyer's class, who just walked in. Rabbi Aaron Neckemeyer is one of the biggest research buffs I've ever met. He seems to know everything about everything about everything, but it's not just that. He also doesn't mind talking about things that you just never expect a rabbi to talk about, meaning he's like the most unorthodox orthodox rabbi, and he knows everything about everything. And he's also fairly entertaining, and it starts with a concert. There's actually a music at the beginning. a flute player. Nice. plays the flute. Oh, he's great. Band. We have a band oh, this starts with a four-piece oh band. Yeah, anyway, so you're all welcome to that. If you need the washroom, grab it now. Come right back. Shalom, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.